Okay, welcome to the latest Downtown Podcast, a frank conversation with, and I'm joined today by Lisa Morton, who is the Managing Director, the founder, the head honcho of RDPR, a fabulous marketing PR agency based in Manchester, but operating right across the UK. Uh, Lisa, delighted that you've been able to join us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Frank. Glad to be here. And listen, I want to start by just asking you about how your career started, you know, how you got into PR uh, and then obviously what made you mad enough to start your own business? <laughs> um, well, going right back to the beginning, I suppose, I was always, um, as a kid, I did two things. I used to create stuff, I used to write stuff, plays, books, whatever I could, uh, I could create, draw things. And I also used to sell whatever was not nailed down. So I used to convince my, my friend's dad to give me uh, his manky lettuces and I'd do like lettuce butties for the kids and I'd do table sales. Um, and so I really felt that I wanted to have my own business from being a very early age. And then Roland Dransfield, who I named the business after, in actual fact, was my godfather. Uh, he was he basically found my dad under his car when he was a mechanic and gave him a job because he was impressed with his service. And he was a big part of our lives, rags to riches, Salford entrepreneur. And he came to my house when I was eight and he said, right, you need your own business. He gave me a bucket and a sponge and he said, go and wash your neighbor's cars and bring me back the money for the bucket and the sponge. I can't remember how much it was. I've gutted. I can't recall that. I had to pay him back at the end of the day and I was in profit day one. So I always knew that I was going to have a business of some kind. I wasn't quite sure what. And then um, I did uh, English and French at university and I wanted to go into something that was communication based. I got a job in London in an ad agency. I went from induction and in those days, which it was 89, I think the induction, it was, there were no flat vowels in London in those days. And I felt absolutely thought, what the hell, there's all these kind of yuppies smoking menthol cigarettes and I thought I'm not going to fit in here so I wrote to every single PR company in Manchester um, longhand and I got a job with a one-man band on Salford Crescent and that was my intro my mum was gutted because the job in London was 14 grand and the one on the Crescent was five <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a bar job in town to supplement that for a couple of years um, went through a couple of agencies and had a you know learned a lot got bullied a lot because I think your bosses in those days thought that was what was going to put hairs on your chest so it's quite a lot of crying at night but um got through that and then I got a lucky break when I was 24 um with a, a an agency in Manchester which is that agency on City Road and they had their PR director was going on maternity leave and they gave me a chance basically I had a massive imposter syndrome for a bit and uh, I made it work and that I was there for a few years and then decided to set Roland Dransfield up as they were, they were going to sell the business actually, and, and I didn't feel that it was where I wanted to go. So I set my own business up then in 96. 1996. Mm. Wow. And the rest wow. is history. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what's interesting though that story, you know, the early years when you've decided actually one day I want to own my own business. Because when you talk to lots of business owners, they do instinctively have something in them, often from an early age. Uh, and so, you know, even though you went off to London, you, you know, you were working as an employee at that point. Did you always have in your head that you would set something up of your own at some at some stage? Yeah, I think so. I think I've always been commercial. I always I had a you know, as I say, I had a job from eight. My, my pocket money stopped not long after that. So I was on my own. 
Uh, my parents realized that I could survive without their, you know, their financial support. And then I was working in shoe shops and pubs and I was always after the tips. So I was always like bothered about how much I could make by giving good service, I suppose. So commissions were important to me. Um, and then I did. Yeah, I did. I always even though I had jobs, I always did some kind of freelancey type stuff on, on the side, helping people. So I'd always had a little side hustle, I'd say, um, even when I was an employee. Yeah. Uh, and so just in terms of what you learned whilst you were you know, going through, uh, I suppose, almost an apprenticeship uh, in the PR world. Uh, and you mentioned, the, you know, a couple of bosses who perhaps had a different style to the one that you adopt, uh, if I can put it that way. <laughs> now, what were the key lessons that you think you learned before you uh, established your own business? Hmm. I learned how not, I learned how I wouldn't want to run a business for sure. That, that was very apparent to me. And I, other than when I was at ICA, which was the agency I went to and, and they were a great team. What I was very aware of at that time was being a woman, a young woman in business. I would always say it's not really impacted on me, but when I look back to those days, it was definitely more difficult as a young woman there were there were very there were few women I'd go into a boardroom for example and I'd say a monthly marketing meeting with a load of senior partners in a professional services firm with a boss and there was only me and her that would assist that table that were women and there was definitely a feeling that you weren't necessarily an equal so but I think that was probably more from a female boss at the time than it was from the people around the table um so there were so you, you definitely had to wear a different hat in order to, to be taken seriously I think so that was um I suppose what that taught me was the fact that you've always got to have an understanding of the people that you're dealing with so wearing different hats and be, being empathetic or very aware of the situation that you're in um communication and relationships are always very very important I could see that and working in you know starting my career in Manchester it was palpable um, that the, 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 the city region is based on very good relationships and that you had to crack those. And I would see some people around, like, you know, when I was young, Sir Howard Bernstein, I thought, my God, you know, if I ever get to the point where Sir Howard Bernstein knows my name, I've made it. And then, so I realised there's a real currency in who you knew, or as Liz Taylor from TaylorMade Events told me, it's not who knows you, it's not who you know, it's who knows you, which is absolutely, she's absolutely right about that. So that's, I've always been conscious about that. And, and the other thing that I was taught very early on, which is brilliant advice, is that always be nice to the juniors. So no matter where you are in your career, always be nice to the people who are younger and more inexperienced than you, because one day they'll be your boss or they'll be, say, they'll be the editor of the magazine, the paper you want to get your, your, your client into. So just, you know, just be a good, decent person. And if you want a long career, which I have had a long career in the same environment, I suppose, if you've made enemies and burnt bridges along the way, you're not going to, you're not going to stay, you know, it's long summer, short career. And that's been very important to me the whole time. Okay. Some interesting tips there. So we get to the point where you're going to set up Roland Transfield. Great story about the name of the business. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Heard that thing. Um, so we get to that point and again, you know, you've very well established business now, of course, you're set up in the mid nineties, but those early stages, um, do you remember them with fondness? There's a bit of an excitement, a bit of a buzz around, isn't it? Every day you're getting up and you're 
thinking, God, this is a new challenge and you're hungry. Um, so, yeah, do you, do you sort of think back to those days with, with a lot of fondness, Lisa? Yeah, I really do. Um, although I did get an ulcer after six months, I was so stressed out. <laughs> but aside from that, it was just a, a minor detail. I absolutely loved it. And I remember that my dad's best friend at the time had a motor dealership down in Bristol. I think it was called Pendragon. And I was getting this new company car that's what I know I was paying myself virtually no salary but the, my dad always my dad was in in cars and in business and he said that when you're making money have a have a good car and a good suit when you're not making money have a good car and a good suit and it doesn't matter if you come back and eat beans get the car so this car arrived up from Bristol I remember on a loader because I was insistent that there was no miles on that clock I was so excited and it was a nice blue uh, Calibra special edition it, I was like cream seats felt like the you know the DVs and then the first day I got it, I got the Lighthouse family cassette stuck in the cassette thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so busy with the business for six months. It stayed in for six months. So my memories of setting the business up, every time I heard the Lighthouse family, it takes me straight back there. I knew every bloody word. Um, but no, I mean, like, I had a massive computer, a massive mobile phone, a fax. I'd had an office in... in um, old uh, in Trafford, Old Trafford, it, Traf uh, Empress Business Centre, but so it, there's no internet or anything. So when you, I'd work all day and then I'd go home, I was living in sale, go home, have a shower, have something to eat and then go back into the office because mm. I, I couldn't afford to have a computer at home and in the office. So yeah, but fun days because you're so hungry. And I remember the first check that I got from the first client and it was just, felt like I was, you know, playing offices at the time. It was brilliant. Absolutely loved it. And were you a, a sort of one-person band at the time then, Lisa? I took somebody on within the first month that I'd had my eye on, who was a graduate, who would, I don't know how to come up, anyway, she was great. Um, and then I took somebody else on who I'd worked with, at the, who'd become a good friend, and she joined me, I think, three months later. So within the year, well, there's about five of us, actually. But your overhead was so low. I mean, you know, rent was low. I paid myself pretty much nothing to start off with. So, um, but we, yeah, we were able to grow very quickly. And it was a brilliant time um, then because we were so, I think, because you just knew, you know, you're fresh on the, on, the, on the ground. And we were very much focused on real estate and professional services and business then. So I, those first few years were fantastic and very profitable, bizarrely. The, the, the business model was amazing. <laughs> Off and away. Yeah. Off and away. Um, yeah, profit over turnover is uh, yes. the mantra that we should all adopt, really. Um, you mentioned there your first check. Can you remember your first client? So my first client had um, had two actually. One was um, University Superannuation Scheme, which is the a pension scheme, and they had a load of property. So one of their big business parts was Deeside Industrial Park, um, and I do remember. Oh, I remember that the client. And the other one was Stuart, Stuart Fraser Kitchens, who was amazing. Mark Harrison, and I know him now, and, and he's brilliant, a fantastic entrepreneur himself. But that Deeside one, I remember when. Um, I got that client and we'd had a couple of meetings with the client. He came up from London. He had really, really white hair, like really snow white hair. And then there was a, always a big meeting of lots of agents at the time. So you'd rock up and then you go through all the inquiries and stuff. And then I, I think it was the third month and I rocked up and sat down. And I was, and I was asking, I was like, where's the client? Where is he? How come he's not shown up? And he was there when he dyed his hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't speak up and so it's like really actually wanted to just slope out the most embarrassing moments of my life completely it's like where's guy oh he's, he's here he's just got like purple hair to know. 
<laughs> so, but yeah, I've got the check and I've got um, I've got that framed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think everyone remembers the uh, the first client. I should mm. think as well. Um, and and in terms of that business, then, so you've gone relatively quickly in terms of growth, uh, complement of staff. But then, when I first got into Manchester, which was much later than this, um, but you were certainly seen as the go-to agency for property yeah. companies. So I, I guess that I'm probably talking about early 2000s, maybe mm. when, yeah. when our paths first crossed. So how did, did that happen by accident or was it a planned strategy that you put in place? Well, at the agency that I'd been at, so my second job, I was we did a lot of property work. So it was a natural fit. And then when I left, people did come to me with some work. Um, so that evolved. And then we had the property boom um, and the phone kept ringing. So, you, you know, you, you take the work and it, it was lots of referral base. You know, the property sector, certainly in Greater Manchester, everyone's interconnected and it's a great referral um, model. So that was brilliant. But then we did hit the issue around uh, the certainly 2008 banking crisis when property fell off a cliff and that really really hurt us mm. and at that point I thought we've got to we have to change because we had other skill sets like we had lots of other you know skills within the team and I'd worked on different stuff in the past so I just thought we've got to remodel what we've got and we we turned uh, we, we brought digital into the business at that point as well. And I spent literally, I think, the, the last few quid to go over to Boston to go on a, um, an inbound marketing conference, which is all about digital content marketing, and changed the business very much. I was consciously employed people with different skills from different sectors. And I suppose from 2008 to, you know, a year ago, we had certainly very strong in real estate and development and placemaking that's and I love it and, and we'll always have that and the b2b side but the b2c side the consumer certainly leisure hospitality sports I've made a conscious effort to really build those pillars of the business so we've been involved in some amazing projects um with you know with those specialisms over the last decade ironically um <laughs> the pandemic <laughs> 10 years later boom all that stuff all the new stuff we created fell off overnight you know events sport music all of that stuff hotels restaurants but it'll all come back but I'm just glad that we that so the real estate side of the business and the, and the b2b side stayed strong so that gave us that kind of you know the foundation I suppose to build back from this past 12 months yeah, you make it sound like a relatively smooth transition back in 2008, and I'm sure it was far more challenging than you've suggested there because you know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, uh, what walk of life you're in, you know, you can be a top-class footballer or sports person and, you know, serious injury, uh, and you've got to start again. And yeah. I think with a lot of businesses back in 08, uh, particularly those that were associated linked to property, then it was tough uh, and many, many went under. Mm. Uh, and I think you deserve great credit for not just surviving, but then going on and thriving again. Mm. Um, but do you think at that time when you reflect, there were things that perhaps you learned that you could have done differently, you could have done better, that you were then able to implement as this next crisis has hit? in 2019-20? 
Yeah, it, I mean, it, the two very different crises. The, the 2008, I think it took us probably five years, four years to get out of that because it was it, there was no cash, was there? I mean, you, that was the issue. There's no liquidity. I couldn't even get an, uh, I couldn't get an overdraft. I mean, I wanted a 15 grand overdraft because every quarter you get quarter day VAT and salaries had hit on the 25th. It was just a nightmare. So there was a lot of they were in lots of dark days and balancing balancing pounds and and you know checks that they were coming in going out and it was pretty scary time um particularly you know, the, the age my kids were and all that kind of stuff and, and holding that responsibility i think and this is really difficult because you you want to look after your teams and you want to make sure everybody's okay i think in 2008 i stopped paying myself i couldn't afford to pay myself a salary uh, everybody else made sure that they were paid and I did put the business in jeopardy by not making tough enough decisions at the time. So we, we were there by, you know, um, by the skin of our teeth, really, I would say, because I, I was I was thinking about individuals rather than thinking about the like, the business surviving. And I think it, we came close. It wouldn't have gone under because you know I would have sold my house to to to, to put money into the business to keep it going. But yeah, I think I've I've learned over that period of time that, and if you don't look after yourself as a person as a business owner, you can't look after the team around you. So I think I got to the point that I was so depleted around that time that it, it probably took longer to come back than 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 this year. And then this year we have had government support in place, and there was absolutely none. You know what he'd help you. <laughs> 2008 to 10, there was nothing. So it has been difficult. And I'm, you know, very sad that I've had to make very tough decisions about my business, which I never thought I'd have to make because we were flying up until March. We were going absolutely in the right direction. It was it was amazing. We were all having a, a wonderful time. So that's been really tough. It's taken its toll on everybody, really, and everyone's been impacted. But I do think with it, with some government support and also the people that haven't been able to stay with Roland Transfer, we have got everybody, they have all got jobs, they're all okay, they've got an income. But yeah, that was a really difficult time. And I think if I'd not been through the last time when I nearly lost the business, I maybe wouldn't have been able to be as objective as I'd been this time, even though it has hurt and, and, and affected who I am as a person. You're making decisions sometimes with your head and, and not your heart, which you've got to do. I think we'll probably come back to, you know, how RDPR have managed the latest crisis a bit later on. But there's a point that you made there, which is often overlooked, I think, when people talk about business owners and entrepreneurs. Uh, and you've said two things, actually. You stopped paying yourself back in 2008. And, you know, you wouldn't have been in a position ever where the business could have gone bust because you have sold your house. And you say it as a sort of off the cuff remark, oh, I'll just sell my house. Mm. You know, most people listening to that will think, but what, what, you just sell your house. You know, that's a huge decision. <laughs> and the reason I make this point, Lisa, is that I'm becoming increasingly frustrated at this notion that we business owners and company directors and entrepreneurs are only out for number one. Uh, and actually, you know, you and I are in a very fortunate position in that we rub shoulders with, uh, let's face it, some of the biggest brands and the biggest entrepreneurs and business owners in the Northwest. And I don't come across that sort of personality. I come across the sort of personalities that you are, 
who would actually sell the house before they'd make someone redundant, who'd actually stop paying a salary to themselves before they'd stop paying a colleague. And yet that, as I say, doesn't appear to be the image that businesses have these days. And as I say, it's really frustrating to me. And I think it's something that, you know, our politicians have to actually be criticised for because, you know, those are the guys who spend the wealth that's created, but we're the people who create the wealth. Uh, without us, uh, you know, there is no NHS, there is no schooling, there's no um, free social care. So, you know, do you share that frustration? Because as I say, I think you, you made those comments, as I say, in such a throwaway uh, manner that it probably surprised some people, but that's what most people in business are like. I suppose I don't really think of it in those terms. I think I've always felt that it's down to me. There's no one else I can go to. And so I've got to make it happen. And I've, and I've felt like that from a very early age. Um, and I know that if I don't get up every day and put one foot in, the, in front of the other, and if I don't make stuff happen, then there's nobody else going to do it for me. So it was, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown and income fell off the cliff and I was like breathing into brown paper bags out the back door at times. Um, it was, I didn't ever think this is so unfair. I didn't think that, although it felt in hindsight when we were absolutely just about to kind of start to reap the benefits of three years of incredibly hard work that everyone had made, we were, we were about to start to kind of see that remuneration and those and that profit. It was just a case of, well, here we go again, that's life. You know, this is it. It was, it was right, okay, dig deep here we go again, let's, let's, you know, find what resources you need. So, and I think when you are a business owner and, you know, I've got two grown up kids now, I've, I've had to run a business the whole time in, in those 25 years, pretty much with, you know, bringing two young children up. I've never had the time to really pontificate about what could be and what couldn't be. It's just come on. It's just, it's get on with it. What needs to be done today? So, so yeah, when you, as you say it like that, I, I, I know what you're saying, but I think a lot of people also maybe don't really, if they don't run their own business, it's very, when you would put your house on the line, yeah, you would, because your business, and certainly for me, it's, it's part of my identity. And it's also now it's my income. And I, I'm not in a position where I can retire and I've not, you know, I, I need to earn every day. But more importantly, I need to make stuff happen every day. And so for me, having a, the, a business, which is a vehicle to, for, you know, you can make change through having a business, not just doing the stuff that's on the desk in front of you every day. You're going to, it's your survival instinct. You're going to, you're going to carry on whatever, aren't you? I'm not going to give up. You mentioned that, that, you know, making a difference is important to you and, it, and it's part of your motivation. I think all of us need to be able to, if you're doing this mad thing of run your own business, have um, an awful lot actually of job satisfaction because it's the thing that keeps you going. If you didn't have that, then why would you own the business? You, ju you just would throw the keys in, wouldn't you, at times? Mm. Um, and again, I'm aware that RDPR do a massive amount. I've always done a massive amount in terms of putting things back into the community. Uh, and I know you've got one or two particular passions, but you know, tell us a bit about what those motivations are for you. And, and you know, as a business owner outside of, uh, you know, the, the nine to five stuff, if I can put it that mm. way, bread and butter stuff, things that you love getting involved. Yeah, I, 
I love it when I can actually make some magic happen by connecting people, by creating a positive outcome from two people meeting or, or two organisations getting together. So when we can affect change, and, and for me, it's really important that, you know, you, you talk about the, the, the bank account, you've got to make more credits they make debits and, and that's what we have to do as human beings we can't take more out and be overdrawn because that's not going to make you feel fulfilled as a person and it's not going to leave any stuff less left in for everyone else so I do think that you, if you have a business or you have a platform then you should use that platform and that voice to support other people or organizations that that don't have that and that, that you can use your voice for, for them so that's the purpose that's beyond um, the, the work that you do every day although happily for us now as an organization we really we work with people who feel the same way so pretty much everybody we work with shares that that common purpose and that goal and more so now definitely within the last 12 months you know after any crisis in, in, in society or in business Certainly, you know, the IRA bomb, I set the business up one month after that. We had, then we had the, the, the 2008 banking crisis. We've had the, we had the Manchester bomb. You know, you see, certainly in Greater Manchester, the community comes together to support and help and see what they can do. And it's just, you know, to be part of that is, is, is actually, is incredible. And you just got to get up every day and you think, how can we as a business and a group of people help others? And you, yeah, you've got to make a profit and I accept that. And you've got to put the profit first because it's only having profits that you've again got the ability to be able to spread some of that resource where you don't need to make any money on the back of it. You know, we talk about profits with purpose and I think more and more now that's more important for brands and businesses. So we encourage businesses to tap into that, but we are also attracting businesses who want to work with us because we, you know, we are aligned and share the same values. Before we go to a short break, I'm just going to stick with this uh, issue of your clients and, and those people you work with. And, you know, we, we reflected on your first client and the guy who died as her. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm just wondering whether you've become more selective over the years, whether you actually now have gut instinct uh, to terms of the people that you're going to enjoy working with uh, and therefore you're going to get the most out of the added value that you guys can give to them is that something that you consider now when you're yeah. out in the marketplace looking for work yeah definitely and absolutely without a doubt and you know we 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 put our values together a couple of years ago and so having those really clear values about what's right for us as a business means that we can decide and we can make decisions about what clients are right for us as well and and a very we don't have to fight for the fees and certainly now having the, the teams leaner and, and kind of looking at how we build back there's no point in jumping on something that's got a fee attached to it because you need the fee because you know in your gut you know in your gut whether that relationship's going to work when you're going to be right for each other so it's just absolutely better just to say no and decline and, and walk away and it's always the ones when you have done it you absolutely bang on the fact your judgment was right in the first place <laughs> but then we're not right for everybody you know we're not right for some people too you know so it's just being honest isn't it because it's just painful if you don't get that relationship right no one's happy mm. it, it is one of the teething problems any business has though isn't it when the first set up you know you are chasing the mm. uh, and so it can make or break you mm. One of the first pieces of advice I was given by a very experienced business person 
was not to do that. Um, but it's very difficult, you know, yeah. when, when you're first out there and you're trying to build a client base and uh, you're trying to, as you said, you know, trying to pay yourself, never mind your staff. Uh, it's difficult to say no. Yeah. Uh, but in the longer term, Lisa, it's such an important thing to be able to identify the people who you, got, you are going to work comfortably alongside, isn't it? Yeah, and I would definitely say to people who've got businesses now and perhaps, you know, people who've maybe started businesses and they were flying and then they've hit this bump in the road. When you're in a situation of adversity, it is really easy just to take the fees because it's survival. But then what happens if you know in your gut and if you have your values, then you need to measure that client and what that client stands for against your own values. If you've got that in place, then that's a really a clear way of doing it. But if not, just tap into your gut. And if you know that that's not feeling right, it's not going to be right. And what happens then is you take that piece of work on, it completely diverts you, it distracts you, it's negative energy. And it's actually, you know, it's more damaging to your business than it is just to walk away and have that courage not to go with it, not to take it and to look for stuff that will work with you. Okay. Now, listen, we're going to take a short break. And uh, after that, I'm going to be talking to Lisa about the culture of business, the importance of that, United City and the future of RDPR. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. I hope you're enjoying the latest Frank Conversation with podcast. For all the latest downtown and business events, please go to our website, all the W's downtownandbusiness.com. Click on the events page and you'll see what we've got coming up. Welcome back to a frank conversation with Lisa Morton. Lisa is the Managing Director of Roland Transfield PR. And uh, in the first part of the podcast, we were talking about her early career and how the agency was established. Uh, and it did come through during that first part of our conversation, Lisa, how important business culture is to you and values. And I know you work really hard to establish a set of values within the business that then guide you uh, as you move forward and progress. So tell me how that came about, because I'm sure, again, it's not something on day one you sat down and thought, right, these are going to be the values of my company. How has that evolved in your head as you've uh, developed the business? I think it was, so it was 2000, it was two years ago in September, and we were moving out of Ogrenada Studios into our offices at Bonded Warehouse. And I'd, the, the move date had, had changed around and unfortunately I was away on holiday that week and then when I landed and I turned the phone on and the phone blew up and there was just basically an absolute shit show going on in the office <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh my god so I thought it just oh god so so I was in the office the next day, called a meeting and it should have been like the nicest meeting, the most exciting meeting in our brand, you know, brand new offices. And I, I said, right, this is going to be like a really shit meeting or it could be a good meeting. It depends on how you take it. But this is the way it's going to work around here now. We're not having any of this crap back, you know, backstabbing, all this kind of stuff. I said, you know, it's just it was meltdown. And there was a re- number of reasons for that. But so we decided to then I said, we're going to. Well, I did say, if anybody wants to resign, let me know by the end of the week, you can go. No hard feelings. But those who want to stay, we're going to be working on the values and things that are actually important to me as the business owner. So, and if you, if you tap into those and you 
can relate to those, then we're all going to be fine because I'm confident enough now that I'm on the right lines. And I think I'd lost my confidence a bit for whatever reason, different people in the organisation, they'd tell we wagging the dog a bit for, for a while. And I thought, no, I'm going to, you know, dig into what's important to me. So we, we, we did this whole values piece and, I, and brought Chris Brindley, MBE, and who's now chair of uh, Rugby League World Cup 2021. Great guy, I'd met him a year before. And we, we did a massive piece of work around our values, which we established as a team, um, 15 values. And people say, how can you remember 15? We, we all know them. It's part of our language. They're on the wall. It's part of who we are as individuals and as an organization now. And it did, uh, it did smoke a few people out naturally as Chris said it would do because once your values are up on the wall and once your values are part of your DNA as a business if you can't show up against those values you you that that organization is not the right one for you which is fine so yeah it made a massive difference um, the values are really important to me we've built everything around it we built the, the, the podcast we built the city podcast that I've got now as a you know we, we ask people about their values and what we found is that businesses and people will will gravitate towards people who have shared values and that in itself qualifies who you spend your time with <laughs> so yeah. it's a win-win yeah. yeah it is important and i think it's something that is certainly relatively new to a lot of small businesses perhaps bigger corporates uh, have introduced that um you know, in the maybe even in the nineties and the early noughties, but it's something that is like you. You know, it's it, it's an area in business that's that's a relatively new thing. Um, and I can't remember. I think it's a combination of a business coach that I have. Um, I'll give him a shout out. Actually, Paul David Pox, and never get to mention. He's been great for me over the past couple of years. But he certainly was big on values in a business and the culture of business. I read a fabulous book called The Barcelona Way, mm, which yeah, talks about how successful Barca is as mm. not just a football club, but an organisation. And that is underpinned by values, which I think Pep has probably taken yeah. to City now. Um, Definitely. The sounds of things. So, yeah, it's hugely important and hugely advantageous. Um, and, and as you rightly say, it does smoke people out. Um, you know, people who aren't right for your business. What? Again, a little bit of a moan, a wind just pose from me is that you sometimes get people into your business and we've had a really challenging time recruiting the right people uh, over the past couple of years because it's a quite a complex uh, and complicated business really downtown. But you find people fall out with you when you say to them, well, this just isn't for you. Yeah. And they, they, you know, they're sort of sort of looking at you thinking, well, you should change for me because I'm that good. <laughs> you actually had a person like this, like, I'm that good. You should change your whole culture, your whole value system for me. And, and so as much as you rightly said, it should be a case of you being able to just shake hands and say, well, socially distance, fist bump and say, <laughs> uh, sorry, this just isn't for you. Not always that easy, is it? no. It's not, and getting that right is is the you know it's a million dollar thing, isn't it? It's and it's it's all about the people. But I definitely think that if you are really clear on your values, it there's there's no argument. It's you come in. These are our values, and, and people, of course, people are going to say I love them. Yeah, they're great. But then if they don't live those values, then it's not just you as the business owner or your senior team that will say, "Oi, 
you're not living the values, the team around that person will naturally call that that behavior out. So it's values and behaviors. I mean, we just have, I mean, just a light-hearted version of that is, well, there's two. I mean, our first value is Sweep the Sheds, and that's straight from Legacy, a book by James Curry about the old blacks. Amazing, which has been a big uh, influence on our values. But if someone's left a dirty coffee, coffee cup in the boardroom, you know, our team will go, oi, sweep the yeah. bloody sheds. Yeah. So, so it's not me going, I'm so <laughs> frustrated. It's everyone going, you know, and then second value is no dickheads. Well, that's yeah. been a revelation yeah. because it makes you, <laughs> but it also makes you go as a team, oi, stop being a dickhead. Am I being a, I'm being a dickhead. So it just, even though, so it does create such a clarity around what is a non-negotiable as, as an organisation. I think it makes it loads easier. Where did you get your inspiration from for those values? I know Clear the Sheds was uh, that great book legacy, which is about the All Blacks. Um, I don't know where No Dickheads is called. Well, same. Okay, is that <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, don't be a dickhead. Yeah. So, so a, a lot from there. But then we, we, what we did is the whole um, process, which we've now actually taken a number of clients through, which we've called Know Your Values. So the whole process around you know, how do you want to be uh, talked about when you've left the room? What's important to you? You know, strengths and weaknesses, what's non-negotiable? So we we put that together. And then what we did was we looked at lots of different codes and different, different values from sporting teams, businesses, big brands, individuals, adventurers. And we pulled together what really spoke to us as individuals. And then we did an exercise where we pulled our favorite together, favorite values together and walk them through to see how relevant it was and how and could we show up against them there's no point in having something that is actually it's you know it's just so far out there it's not going to be achievable there had to be stuff that we felt that we could deliver on and then we when then we came up with the 15 together and wrote them up and now yeah as I say you know the every you know so we go walk a mile in another shoes we have empathy we, we listen we learn but if you don't get that right, our other value is admit it, fix it, move on. So yeah. you're not going to get it right all the time, but admit it, be humble enough to go, got that wrong. Let's talk about it and let's find a better way to go forward. So I feel like ours do all relate to each other. So there's a bit of a roadmap to that you, you we learn we learn every day when you hold yourself um, aligned, you know, accountable to them. Mm. Uh, you mentioned accountability there, and we've had a conversation recently about business coaches i've just mentioned mm. uh, the guy i work with and i know you're a big believer in that as well because equally as business owners uh, as much as you try to create an environment where people will tell you if you're being a dickhead mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, i'm sure we, we we all are at times um it is difficult isn't it for you to set yourself uh, goals at the start of every month the start of every quarter uh, and then have someone who could sit down with you and say, well, why haven't you done this? Mm. Uh, and, you know, as much as it's good to give you thinking space uh, in terms of a business coach, give you ideas, give you that opportunity to come up with strategy. Equally, what I've found it useful for, don't know about you, is that you get the right person. They will actually say, hey, well, you said this was really important to you. Why hasn't it been done? Is that something that's been useful for you yeah definitely because i think so i've, I've worked with chris brindley and i've worked with um, an amazing um guy called danny donachy who's actually head of um, medicine at, at everton and he's a very he's got a blend of spirituality and um i suppose organizational um knowledge i suppose and, and he, so he, he can marry those two together but yeah he 
you know, if I don't see him that often, but maybe what we once every six weeks, once every couple of months, and he makes notes, and then it, when I'll say something, he'll go, "Yeah, but Lisa, you've been you're idealizing this because do you remember what you said to me two months ago? Here it is, and so therefore you're slipping back into those patterns." And I'm like, "Yeah." So he said, "So, so I think to somebody can not be in your head." who can stand outside of that and hold you accountable and just give you the prod. Sometimes you need to make the decisions that you feel kind of stuck with. And I think it's a massive help. Interestingly, I've got, there's, there, you know, I've got two male coaches and I haven't got a female coach and that's what I want to, I'm going to, I do want to find somebody this year because I think, I think that's important as well, because as a mother as well, I, I've learned this recently through Danny that, it's easy to be mother and father with an organization as a business owner. So if you're, if you're the only shareholder, for example, or you managing director, or whatever you've got to, you feel as a, as a woman quite often that you've got to be all the good stuff and, and all the, and be there to be the father role. So I think that is difficult then for people to relate to. And we all yeah. idealize our leaders to some degree. So I think you can try to find line because you can't be a wonderful person and keep everybody happy all the time so that's difficult that's a challenge I think as a leader mm. uh, in terms of that sort of peer-to-peer female-to-female support um, do you think that's got better because again a comment that you made earlier almost a throwaway again was you know bloody awful boss a, a woman <laughs> um, and it was funny I got me proverbials chewed off at a forum I chaired a few years ago now when I asked the question whether sometimes you know this sister's doing it for themselves actually sisters doing it to other sisters was a was an issue uh, and that, that one of the women reacted to that to suggest that I was being um, a bit misogynistic actually the comment was being made because Nisha Katona who is a fabulous fabulous entrepreneur had made the comment at a Women in Business Awards uh, speech that she made for us. Uh, and I just wondered what your take on that is, uh, whether that's got better uh, in recent times, because, you know, I've got many uh, female made to own their own business. In fact, my wife owns her own business, who have said on occasion, they felt as though actually there has been a little bit of sniping um, from the, the females of the species. <laughs> well i i've just got an amazing network of, of women around me and you know lots of those women uh, have businesses lots of them work some of them don't work and and i do feel very very supported by the, the female network and i know john roney said on the podcast actually when she came to manchester she didn't have she didn't really know anybody in manchester she just really wanted to be here and, and she got the job and rocked up without knowing anybody and it was the female network that wrapped themselves around her and supported her and, and welcomed her and, 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 and kind of brought them into the, into the city, really. So I don't really feel that. I mean, if, I mean you're always going to have the odd person. I think, and again, in terms of your team, there's always, there's, you know, you're going to rock up every few years going to somebody who, you know, you're going to clash with, I suppose, and the, you, you're not going to work alongside but no but you know from when I started out it was very very difficult it was very competitive I didn't really feel it, it I wasn't bothered when I was 21 I was just trying to get to grips with what working life was about but I can see it then I can see in those days when there were so few women I mean we still got nowhere near like equality now and um, in terms of numbers and, and where people um, are in terms of you know seniority in, in some of the bigger organizations 
but I, I think it was it, it was survival in a lot of cases in those yeah. days because it was having to make yourself heard and known and respected was not easy 25 yeah. years ago yeah and I think that's a great point uh, and perhaps the one I was trying to draw out badly is that as we do start to see more female entrepreneurs and leaders emerge then actually those support networks are easier to develop for, for a start that there's a bigger pool yeah. um, so in that regard it should get easier moving forward shouldn't it and certainly you know for for my daughters uh, for your daughter uh, we do hope it's going to be a lot easier for them in the future mm, definitely let me move on to where we are now uh, and you know we've talked briefly about how you've handled the business uh, of the pandemic and we will finish with um, a conversation about where you think RDPR is going to go moving forward. But we set up this thing called United City. Uh, it was done back in the autumn. Uh, it doesn't seem that long ago, actually, because all the days merge into one of them. Um, but I, I take some responsibility and have to apologise that I wrote you in, really. <laughs> so, so. No, you phoned me up and said, are you in, kid? <laughs> Um, uh, and uh, you know well listen tell tell people who are listening um, why we set United City up what it's about uh, and and why you got involved Mm. well you as I say you phoned me up and and I'd I've been doing my bit rather than doing our bit to try and help across the city in lots of different ways and the thing that was heartbreaking for me and for a lot of us was to go into a city that you've you've traveled into every single day of your work since you've been on holiday um which you love and which is vibrant and it's it's part of who you are as as a person and to see it just on its knees you know it was actually heartbreaking it felt it felt to me like you know you, you well it was like a, just a bad film to see that and and I couldn't stay out of the city centre, even though we we're all supposed to be working at home. I'd like walk in from sale and I wanted to be in there. And we, we, you know, we did do some work in the office at times when we had to. But it was that it was if, if you're not here for Manchester, Manchester can't be here for you. That was what was on my mind the whole time. And I felt that we had a collective responsibility, not just to let it wither and not just to let it be somebody else's job to sort the city out, but that we had to come together if we love it. And we've had so much from it over our careers and personally and professionally that we had a we had a responsibility to to try and get it opened up again in a, in a safe way so that's why I got involved and to see what measures we could take as a business community to make sure the whole ecosystem would survive and that it wasn't just going to survive on people coming in for eat out and eat out to help out in the summer you know if there are no people in there working and, and spending the pound in the local news agents it's not going it, to it's a false set up but it was almost like a, a film set that for me so so obviously you know we were we wanted to have the you know encourage work from work in a, in a, in a covid safe way and understandably there's been lots of different messaging we then had to feel the you know the, the, the massive spike again in the virus which stopped that but collectively what we're here is we're going it's planting trees we'll never see we're making sure that we use our platform and our voice to try and get the city back to the city that, that we love and that we want to be there for us when we're all ready to go back into it. Mm. Uh, and when I sort of started to talk to a couple of people who I thought would be, you know, off for uh, that work from work campaign and, and reviving the city as quickly as possible, you know, I was very conscious uh, of the fact that we're all, you know, people involved in that group aware of 
the damage COVID's done. None of us are COVID deniers. You know, we don't come from the David Icke wing of uh, the political spectrum. But equally, I think what is refreshing about that group is that we don't just either see everything through the lens of COVID uh, and we recognise because we deal with it on a daily basis, either uh, with the clients that we have or with the staff that we employ, um, issues such as mental health. Um, we are conscious of the fact that, you know, because we work with other agencies in the public sector, domestic violence and child abuse uh, are through the roof. Uh, and again, I think we recognise, Lisa, that if the economy is going to come back in the way it needs to, then city and town centres are going to have to be an integral part of that. You can't expect the hospitality sector to just totally reopen if big corporates in city and town centres are saying, well, our teams are all going to continue to work from home. Mm. Uh, and actually, without that ecosystem of business, we all suffer, including in the longer term, those big corporates. So I think we're looking forward to the time and we can really positively put those messages out about why it's important and why it helps for people for all sorts of reasons um, to, as, and you coined this phrase, work from work. Mm. Without a doubt, you know, we can't, working from home is not the same for, for everybody. And if you're a senior partner, a big professional services organization, and you've got the garden office and you've got an espresso machine, that's that's one way of working from home. But if you're a kid who's got four other siblings and, and, and from a, a more deprived background and a young person who might not even have actually been physically in the office yet in their first job, it's a whole different scenario. I mean, I know my son's mates, you know, some of them, the, 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 the bed's an inch from the desk, you know, that's where they work, that's their workplace and, and, and the Wi-Fi doesn't always work. So it's really difficult. And the office, office is a leveller. And sometimes it provides you with the support that you need away from what you have at home. And whether you're a kid or you're an older person, as you say, it's respite sometimes. And it also helps you to have the support network that, that, that we all need. So I, I, I feel absolutely that certainly now with the new messaging from the government, that if you can go to Harvey Nichols and you can go and get your hair cut and your nails done and you can go for, you know, um, for a meal somewhere, then and go to the gym you, you should be able to be able to work in a safe environment with the right risk assessment in an office uh, and it just does come down to that marvelous commodity that appears to have been abandoned by the government common sense mm. uh, i think it is difficult to get people to abide by rules and regulations if they're not consistent and if they don't make sense to people and you've just outlined you know what why is it okay for me to do all of those things but then not encourage our teams to go back into offices and you know the other thing from a business perspective that we're all conscious of is that thing culture you know we talked about it earlier how can you embed culture into anyone who works for you if they're stuck at home working how are they going to get the culture of your business well, certainly not if you've not had a very strong culture and a strong set of values beforehand. And I have heard this where there are some people that are saying that they've kind of almost forgotten who they're working for, what their organisation is, because it's so linear and, this, and it's so isolating. So there's none of that culture that comes naturally from being together. So it's more difficult to hold that together when people are isolated. But I do think, you know, we have to be aware of everyone's got their own COVID journey. Everyone's doing this their own way and you can't impose your 
perspective or framework on other people because people have experienced stuff and, and and have lost people this this past 12 months so i wouldn't want to be cavalier about it but i certainly think that the issue is where people have not got the option to work from a workplace that's the issue if you know if you don't feel comfortable i think your employer should understand that and make allowances for that and support it but the fact it is just a no you can't come back we are not open then i think that's a real issue and it's a it's lacking in empathy and responsibility to to people you know to teams really um we could talk all day yeah. sometimes we do uh, <laughs> at least three or four times a day on occasion um i want to use the last few minutes of conversation today which i found absolutely fascinating um to talk about the future uh, and how you see rdpr you've probably on you know version three now aren't you <laughs> at least maybe four <laughs> yeah think about that journey you've gone through um but again listen I, because we talk regularly we've got to know each other uh, much better over the last nine months it's one of the big bonuses for me of the uh, <laughs> pandemic um but you're excited about the future aren't you you know you know yeah. despite all those challenges you know what always shines through to me when i speak to you lisa is that you, when we get on to the business it's not with any sense of dread that you talk about the future. It's real excitement. You've got some dynamic plans. You've got a team that you're really comfortable with and you love. So you are just ready to hit the ground. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do feel excited. And, you know, in every crisis, an opportunity. You've got to make some tough decisions. You've got to do the hard yards. I feel that we're really in a good place now. Um, Chris Brindley talks about white room thinking. I think it's who, who Clive Woodward's expression, white room thinking. So it's if you can take everything out of the room and then put the stuff back in that you need, then you, you and we never really have that opportunity to do that in business. Once you start, it's organic, it grows. Whereas I do think now we're kind of in that position. I can, you know, I want to make some changes to my life. I've realized in the last 12 months that I've missed being creative and, that's really going back to the stuff I loved as a, as a young person. So I'm now working on different platforms, the podcast, all that stuff, which is really important to me, and I'm not going to let that go. And it's also, you know, some of the team are going, let flexible working, let's do that. This is over 12, 18 months ago, and I was like, no jeans, no flexible working. And now it's like, where, what, the, what, where you, what you want, work from where you want. Um, and and we're, so yeah, so there's some exciting things happening. We're recruiting again. And then we're just about to announce a partnership with an LA agency, which is somebody who used to work with us a very long time ago, and we've kept in touch. And we're now working, collaborating with, with her team which is amazing. It's a fantastic story. Um, and I was on a, a call the day and we'd got somebody in LA, someone in Canada. We got their accents. We got Sam with his Wigan accent, Maria with a Scouse accent. And the client was like, what the hell are these accents going on here? But what you realize now is because everyone is more accepting of a flexible way of working, just getting the best people to do the job and being more effective. So yeah, I've got a lot of ambition. I've got a couple of other companies that I want to launch over the next 12 months. So yeah, I'm excited. Well, we look forward to the next part of your business journey and uh, the journey of RDPR. Thanks, and Lisa Morton, thanks for having a frank conversation with Downtown in Business today. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. See you soon. See you, Frank.